Thanks for downloading this podcast from Brum Radio. For more programs, search our podcast page at brumradio.com. Hello and welcome to the Brum Radio Book Show. We've had a, we've had a, a bit of a summer break and uh, now we're back and it's September and the leaves are falling and the, the nights are drawing in and people are lighting fires. I'm, I'm painting a picture here, if you will. Yeah, a slightly inaccurate per- picture. Perfect reading time. Yes, it is. It this is. is this is the time of year when we we we, we kind of turn off the tilly and uh, we get our books out and uh, we cuddle up with a good book. And we've got plenty of stuff uh, and plenty of books and plenty of uh, things we'd like to talk to you about. Um, by the way, I'm Mike Gale. And that other man was? Uh, Blake Woodham. We are the Brum Radio Book Show here on Brum Radio. And we're going to spend the next hour talking about things with pages. That's right, yes. Um, you can Also e- available in Kindle formats. So. <laughs> of course, yes. And uh, don't forget that uh, we want you to be as involved in the show as we are. So you can uh, tweet us at at Brumradio underscore books. You can email us at bookclub at brumradio.com. Um, and we won't talk about phoning. Um, we've done with that. But if you did want to, <laughs> you, you certainly could do that on 01216335534. And we have our producer, Andrew, here in the studio who will answer your call uh, politely. Won't you, Andrew? Of course. That's it. Very politely. Okay. Um, so, as usual, uh, we've got an absolutely bumper-packed show for you. We've got the book of the month with the Stella Mac Hague. Um, I think about everybody in England is following you on Twitter. Uh, his his book's been turned into a film. Uh, he's he's just a, a, like a one man booking thing. He is a machine. He's he's a very eclectic writer. That's one of the things interesting about him. He writes children's books, non fiction books, and you know, sci fi books, but also um, non genre fiction. He's very a very eclectic writer. We've also got uh, Ian J Simpson. He's going to be talking about. Um, He's going to be doing our blog spot feature, mm-hmm. which will have a little, little bit of a sci-fi theme to kind of time with Matt's book, which mm-hmm. I believe is about time travel. Mm, is it? Or, or is it? We'll or, or is it? We'll oh, have, have, I, have I have I spoilt it somewhat? We've also, as usual, we've got uh, Stuart from Waterstones in the house. Hello, and uh, and Catherine O'Flynn as well. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on, Kat. God. Hello. Good. <laughs> it, it's terrible. been a tough summer for her. A tough summer for her. Um, but Catherine will be um, reviewing um, the uh, her debut of the month, which is Flesh, Bone and Water, I believe. Is that yeah, right? Flesh and Bone and Water. Ah, Flesh yeah. and Bone and Water yeah. by... Louisa Salma. Louisa... Salma. Salma. Oh, sounds interesting. <laughs> and so, here we are. <laughs> Oops, sorry about that, everyone. It's, all, it's been a long time since I've been in the studio and I forgot what all the buttons do. Okay, so this was, that was the Merlin Dean music to get everyone excited hey. about uh, the fact that we are back and um, we're going to be talking about what we've been up to, I suppose. Have you had a, uh, an action-packed summer? Um, my, my summer has um, it's been really good actually I've, 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 
one of the things I really like about the summer is that it's the time when I get to read books most. So I tend not to work for a couple of weeks and I just read loads and loads and loads. And um, I must have read about six or seven over the summer, um, of which my favourite was the um, the outlier. I think it's the outlier by Amy uh, Lip Liptrot. I think it is. It's all about. Uh, it's so she's this kind of. Uh, it's not a novel. Uh, it's her life uh, um, biography. So it, she is this kind of hipster living in East London, and um, uh, long story short, she gets addicted to alcohol, a bit of a drunk, and uh, head, decides to head home to the Orkneys. And it's about the Orkneys essentially, and her trying to get sober. And uh, it was a really interesting book. I, I, I quite like places like the Orkneys. They're, they're quite bleak, and yet you can have all these different sorts of weather. It's all in the, in the kind of one day, and um, they've got these amazing beaches. And it, it's very, I suppose they're so tiny that you you know you've got to get on with everybody. Uh, I, I found it a really interesting book. So, yeah. and uh, apart from that, um, I've been writing short stories. Um, well, a short story, and um, I'll talk to Catherine about this a little, little bit later. But I absolutely hate writing short stories I, it's just the most difficult thing in the world it's just really really hard um, it's surprising because it, you would think a lot easier than writing a long story you know, well, well, well it is, in, is in the sense of uh, you know yes anybody can write a short story if you don't care what it's about or or it having a point but if you care about either of those things it, it's quite difficult you know to actually have something that you want to say in a short space of time and not feel like you've wasted somebody's you know, time by saying, oh, it was actually from the point of view of a beetle or something like that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I just, so it's so Kafka I'm, you're now slagging off. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I'm just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> all right, poets, short stories. Okay. China. Just, China, <laughs> yes. Um, I'm not trying to pick enemies. I just, I find... I think, I think much like poetry. I think. I th- oh, <laughs> stop him! Stop him! I just think that um, the good ones are brilliant, mm. and it's very hard to do a good one. It's a very different skill to writing yes. a novel, isn't it? It's a very different. <coughs> you've got to get your point over very fast, and you know you can't. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's not even that. It's just, it's just about making it. What was the point of what you've written? Mm. And I think that's a very hard thing to do. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm struggling with that, but I'm, I'm having a I'm having a go. I'm having a go. How about you? How was your? Well, uh, I I took a, um, the sort of opposite view, um, and um, normally I really relish summer and I read loads, um, but I've um, <laughs> downloaded loads of TV programs, ended up watching loads of telly instead. <laughs> oh, um, excellent. <laughs> So uh, yeah, so, so we're redundant now. Uh, no, but um, it was it was quite weird because normally I would have you know I would look back at my summer and go that's the big pile I've managed and it was it's a small I still read of course but uh, not as much but I did read the um, Underground Railroad the uh, Colson Whitehead book mm-hmm. which is mind bending really interesting I would love to kind of talk to him about it, the thought process behind it because it is really un- you know it won the uh, Arthur C Clarke sci-fi award um and you know it's it's not sci-fi in any way as we know it It is you know if those of you that don't know it's set 
uh, during the, the, the period of slavery in the United States, um, the Underground Railroad existed in real life. It was a series of, of safe houses um, and, and, and people that helped escape slaves uh, get to the north and to freedom. Uh, and in this story, it is that story of, the, uh, of a, a, an escaped slave called Cora. Um, but the Underground Railroad is literally a real, like an underground train system mm-hmm. that so she she comes out in different places and it's an opportunity for her to then explore for the author to explore the different states in America and the different kind of points of view of slavery as she kind of pops up in these different places having got on this enormous train which of course is you know bizarre um, but it's utterly utterly played straight as well so it's only halfway through you have to keep reminding yourself there wasn't actually a secret tube network <laughs> underneath <laughs> the entirety oh, yeah. of the US or was there um, yeah. so I really really um, really that enjoyed that brilliant. yeah and also read um, amongst other things I read uh, Little Deaths the um, uh, Emma Flint novel that oh, Catherine yes, reviewed as a debut, media, yeah. um, which um, which I really enjoyed as well. Real, um, both of these books are real strong, interesting, um, sort of transgressive female uh, main characters, um, which you know is something that we want to see more of, frankly. So yes, um, reading, um, but not as much as I oh, would have liked. Um, okay. Sorry, everyone's looking at me slightly askance because I'm supposed to be pressing yet another button, but uh, it's not quite ready yet. Apologies. Here we go. And that means that it's time for Stuart from Warstones. Thank Hello. you very much. Hello. How are you in, in your new role? Just explain oh, what your really? new role is. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, uh, I'm still heavily involved in events at the store, which is our big thing. Yeah. Um, but I've also got an area training role. Oh, right. So I've okay. been traveling around the area a bit. Got been to Shrewsbury. Oh, right. Okay. Are you teaching them how to be more like you? I think so. Yeah, I think that's what's right, needed right. in book selling. I like what you're doing here, but we need more beard. <laughs> <laughs> we need more beard, more poetry more, front. More poetry center. in the front, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Mike Gale at the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poetry and short stories. Absolutely. Oh, what have you been reading over this? Did you, did you go away in the summer? Well, yes, I did. So I, ha- I had a big, important birthday in the summer. Um, I'm not telling you which one. Dirty, right? Well, you can guess. Dirty, you can guess. And uh, so I went to New York. I've never been to wow. America, even let alone New York. But what a great place! What a great Sad place. time to go, though. Yeah, well, uh, yes and no. The, everyone in New York hates Donald Trump, mm, yeah. so actually, it felt quite yeah. a good. And you know, it felt a very tolerant place. It felt a very um, just safe, yeah, surprisingly yeah. safe place. And obviously, so much going on. So, really good. Did you buy any books or poetry while you were out there? I bought some books and poetry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did you buy? Did you, can you remember? Off, off? No. No. Right, okay. <laughs> the, the, the book shops there, how, are they in rude health? What's the kind of so, scene um, there? Yeah, so there's a better indie bookshop scene over there. Um, I think that, obviously, it's a much bigger place, yeah. so there's more opportunity. Um, Barnes & Noble are very healthy. Um, mm. Borders, the other big chain, collapse, which I think helped them quite a lot. Um, I like Barnes & Noble. I think they they do make really good bookshops, and there's, there's about five in New York, all of which I saw. Oh, right. <laughs> so it was a tour, essentially a tour of... Yeah. Well, you know, you've got to see what if they're doing anything better. Yeah, and were they? <laughs> not a lot, not no, a lot. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I liked uh, The Day Call. It was quite an um, oldie library, which surprised me, right. which I quite like, but um, I don't think they're as nice as we are. 
And have you, did you have any favourite indies that you came across? I can't remember the name of the indie I found that I loved, but it was in Greenwich Village, quite near the cafe where Bob Dylan started. Oh, right. So okay. that was the kind of point of me being there. Well, I found this lovely indie shop there that was kind of, you know, just everything you want it to be, really. It, it's small, but doing all the right things. I don't know how people do that. Yeah. You know, it's a really difficult balancing act. Right, well, that's a, that was the part one of what we did on our <laughs> holidays. Um, Sorry. Tell us what, what you've got going on in this shop. Well, so uh, I'm glad we're on a bit of a sci-fi uh, subject because the two events, I mean, we obviously do events all the time. They're all on waterstones.com. Um, but the two I've picked out to talk about, we've got two really good sci-fi authors coming this month. Um, Peter V. Brett. I think a, a good uh, syllable in between your two names is a good way to go in sci-fi. But he's a, he's a brilliant writer, and his new book, The Cause Out, um, which is the fifth in the series, we're expecting he's coming to read, and I think that'll be great. And then um, also linking nicely into the train theme, uh, we have Ben Aranovich's new book. So all his books are set in um, London Underground, but in a, a very kind of weird London Underground that none of us recognise full of ghosts and magic and all sorts of things. And seats on the trains. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. imagine. And uh, so his new book, The Further Station, carries on that series, and he's coming as well. And, you know, so when's that? It's a good show. So, sorry, the, uh, Peter V. Brett's on the 24th and Ben Aranovich on the 26th. Fantastic. And you're also involved with the Birmingham Literature Festival, which is coming. Well, we are, and... Um, so that launches on the 6th of October and runs for only 10 days this time. It used to be um, a 13-day festival, um, and we're the official booksellers for that. So not only will we be at all the events selling the books for the authors, but um, a few of the events will actually be landing in our store. So we're It's the 20th well. anniversary. So it's 20 years since the, the festival began. This is true, yes. Uh, this year, and they've got some tie-up with Virgin Trains, because it's Virgin Trains' 20th year as well. Is it the flash fiction thing? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's something, I think Stuart McConey's travelled on trains and written some short stories about them, but they are, that event is sold out, unfortunately. Gosh. So I'm told. Um, but there's, there's are, are lots of other events uh, there, of course. I'm actually interested in um, Joe Lysett and Jess Phillips yeah. are doing yeah. one on the 11th of October. Um, I haven't read Jess Phillips's book, but my partner has, and says it's absolutely fantastic book about you know her life as a as an MP and be particularly about you know the, the particular trials of being a female MP um, but some other interesting stuff now we've, we talked about this off air I've never heard of before a dawn kayak slash right <laughs> event this is because where what? it's so it's you you get you there's also a, d- a dusk for those of you that aren't early right you get up do some kayaking um, and then uh, with an instructor it's not just chucking you in the in the river in the canal, and then you come back and there is a writing workshop. So oh, I'm it's not quite, quite a sure good the idea because because you, you're seeing the city from a perspective that you just don't see it from, and I think I think workshops always work. Especially with being terrified of drowning. As, as someone who goes to a few workshops occasionally, um, they seem to work best when they kind of force you to see things differently. Mm. So I think it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah I blame well. Alice Fowler. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, she's yes, kicked off Birmingham by, by Waterway. So uh, if you go to the BirminghamLiteratureFestival.org website... Um, uh, my, my kind of highlight from the Birmingham Literature Festival is um, Know Your Place Working Class Writing, which features our very own working class 
citizen here, uh, Catherine O'Flynn. Right. I, I've seen, I've seen your, I've seen your kitchen. It yeah. is, is the least working class kitchen I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Quinoa coming out of every yeah. uh, drawer. We had, to, we had to get all the middle class accoutrements when I knew you were coming round. So like, right. Someone from Harbin's visiting, quick. Find <laughs> <laughs> the black pudding spam. <laughs> get the avocados out. Get the coal out of the van. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what's, so what is this event? Uh, yeah, so um, there's a book coming out, an anthology... Do you know there was an anthology last year that Nikesh Shukla put together called The Good Immigrant? Yes, and a huge was, success that, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, huge success. And I think he was, I think it might have been spurred by a conversation on um, Twitter, him saying, you know, should do something like this for uh, working class writers or writers who don't feel they're from the sort of uh, the middle class publishing blah, blah. And um, a guy called Nathan Connolly at, um, I've completely forgotten the name of the publishers now, but anyway, he picked up on this and started putting together this book, which, like The Good Immigrants, has been crowdfunded. And so, yeah, it's writers who, uh, a collection of stories by writers who feel, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about my class position. I'm not sure, but somehow I've, I've ended up in there. So, um, yeah, know your place is the name of the collection, and this event has um, a few of us reading out our essays or stories. So, um, can you give us a bit of a sneak peek of what it is you've got in there? But yeah, mine's about primary school pop music and sectarianism. Classic. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a well-known combination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, one. I know it's well-trodden ground, but Hopefully I will. Hopefully, you're going to be putting a new spin on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, something to excite everyone there. Oh, that sounds fantastic. That sound, do, they, do they check your working class credentials at the door? Well, it's is interesting, that? isn't it? Yeah, is yeah. I'm not sure. I guess we'll be, you know, we'll all be sort of needling each other. It's like, so, so what did you used to call uh, <laughs> sweets? <laughs> yes, yeah. oh, what do you call your evening meal? <laughs> That's it, yeah. uh, in, in, uh, in speaking of also of other groups that perhaps have been marginalised um, from publishing, there's also... Um, Polari writing um, uh, coming on at the festival, which looks interesting. Uh, so there is an event on the eighth, which is a short story writing in Polari kind of um, workshop again. I think so. I think that is interesting. That's in conjunction with the Shout Festival, which is the LGBT festival here in Birmingham. Um, so that's another one I've got my eye on. So lots going on. So now it's uh, time for us to talk about uh, this month's book of the month, which is How to Stop Time. By Matt Haig. I have a short introduction yep. by the writer himself, uh, who's going to do a much better uh, job of it than me, so I'm going to play that now. Hello, I'm Matt Haig. My new novel is called How to Stop Time. Um, it's a novel I have ironically been writing for what seems like an eternity. So it's a novel that I've had on the go for ages, um, and it's probably the novel I'm most. Um, pleased with and had most fun um, writing. It's a story of a 439-year-old man who looks like a 41-year-old um, history teacher in East London, and it's about um, his adventures and his dilemma of how to love when everyone he's ever known he has lost. That, that was it. really interesting. It is um, interesting. It is interesting. I it's mean, as you were saying before, I mean, Matt, you, you just never seem to know what you're going to get from him next. He's done... Christmas books, he did the How to Say Insane book, mm. um, and you know, I really enjoyed his previous novels as well. He it, said something really interesting actually when I met him, which was that he st- was writing two books simultaneously this one and another one, which was all set in um, a single room over a single day, and it was utterly kind of realistic. And he said he found that as he was writing it, this one 
with its incredible conceit of someone living for hundreds of years became felt more realistic um and i can understand totally what he means by that his previous book um the humans yeah. was about an alien occupying the body of a um a maths professor and using it to kind of explore what it means to be human and again obviously that's an incredibly fantastical conceit but he does write ultimately about human condition very well and i think you mentioned his book how to stay alive yeah. which was a huge um breakthrough for him well breakthrough is not the right word because he was obviously successful before and it's yeah. a non-fiction book about his um, struggles with mental health issues um, and that feels it, it feels very much like it's part of that so although it is fantastical I think there is that thread through all his work it's very humane yes absolutely uh, stuff so uh, we're going to hear the first part of the interview and um He's going to be talking about what, what sort of thing? He's going to be talking about uh, how he came to write the book uh, and one of the, the, the issues of trying to come, get into the head of a man who's 400 years old. So let's have a listen. The concept is incredibly daunting. The whole sweep of human... Well, not the whole of human history, but <laughs> the sweep of a long time. Did you have any concerns about embarking on such an undertaking? I had massive concerns because I'm a writer who doesn't... I'm not really a massive fan of research. I'm quite a lazy writer, to be honest, a lot of the time. And so to do a book that um, spans five centuries um, was very scary. I mean, I've always had various ideas of doing historical fiction and I've been put off that just in one single period because of the amount of research involved. So this was sort of like tw researching 12 historical novels because it's a, a roughly about 12 different periods. Um, and yeah, it was, it was in incredibly daunting, but I just liked the idea of um, a story that's very much in the present, a character who's very much in the present, but who himself embodies history. So he's not immortal, but to have this 439-year-old man... Um, as the narrator, it was a device to be able to ask tons of questions about time, about human life, about mortality, about the secrets we have to keep. And obviously there's a lot of, as you say, a lot of factual history, but there's also a lot of emotional history of what it's like to be 439. How did you address that idea of what would it do to your mind to live that long? Well, I suppose, I mean, like lots of my stuff, it, it came out of my experience in my 20s when I was ill with um, various overlapping mental health issues, depression, anxiety, panic disorder. And um, one thing those sorts of mental health conditions do to you, or did to me, was they make you think very much about time. Um, you know, I, I was sort of continuously ill at varying degrees for about three years and that three years still to this day feels at least like half my life um, it, you know I, I almost came out of that period feeling like a 439 year old man um, so you know if, if you put, put your hands in the fire uh, a minute feels like a year so it's sort of like that in terms of mental health so I'm obviously not someone who's lived 439 years, but I th think uh, people who've experienced something like depression or something like that, hopefully this book isn't depressing, but people who've had those sort of experiences um, kind of have that feeling of having um, gone through something that felt like infinity. And um, I didn't want to write a novel about depression, but I was fascinated by this idea of time. So I literally sort of exploded the idea up and actually... Um, made it literal so he's literally someone who's lived that length of time and Tom the character 
as well as having the kind of emotional impacts uh, perhaps of, of mental health uh, issues he also has to deal with stigma he also has to deal with with people not understanding him yes again do you think that could be seen as a metaphor for the way that mental health has been dealt with in in history um totally i i i think the idea of having a condition looking like an ordinary everyday healthy 41 year old human being but having this sort of baggage inside you is um quite an obvious i suppose metaphor for mental health things um i didn't go about it directly that way but as i was writing it i started to realize how in a way autobiographical a lot of it was the idea of hiding something from people um hiding that condition and people not necessarily knowing just by looking at you in fact um you know very few people in the book do end up knowing uh, about his condition and so um yeah it was just it was just something that um felt more real to me than if i was writing um, because I, I'd had to, basically I'd had two ideas at the same time. I had this idea, uh, or I was writing this other book about this agoraphobic who, and it was very realistic, and it was set in one day, very short time frame, the complete opposite, and it was totally realistic. But in a weird way, how to stop time felt more real as I was writing it than I was doing the other one. So I, th- I was thinking, if if like a fantasy feels more real that's definitely the novel I should do and I, I notice that a lot with my books I often start off trying to be directly realistic but that becomes like a sort of fantastical device um, which makes it easier and um, to talk about what, what I want to talk about so I think that's the joy of fiction generally that we can actually get closer to the truth by sort of going round it Sorry, I got caught at the end there. So into listening to it as well. You're listening to the Broom Radio Book Show. Uh, That was the first part of our interview with uh, Matt Haig. He's talking about his absolutely brilliant novel, How to Stop Time. Um, We'd love to hear what you think of it. If you've read it, if you've read any of Matt's stuff, uh, don't forget you can tweet us at at Radio underscore books or email us at bookclub at brumradio.com. Now, like, um, time travel, it, it, it's one of those things... Well, it's, just, it's, it's not time travel. That's yes, the thing. It's, yes. So his character is a lot, yeah, covering a lot of time period. Covering yeah. a lot of time. But yeah. it's one of those things that, that the kind of popular consciousness seems to be sort of obsessed with in, in a lot of ways, um, whether it's through the eyes of vampires who yeah. are living for hundreds of years... Or we, we have the time traveller's wife, and yeah. we um, and there, there, were, there were a slew of American series um, last last year. There's about two or three time travel shows. Mm. What is it? Do you think is is the attraction of? Well, I think I think you know obviously it's this idea of you know the wisdom. I think I mean I think that's what he does really well in this book. There's another one um, in a, similar, a sort of similar thing. Uh, David Mitchell writes about. Um, people who live for a long time mm. and of course if you live for 400 years you think you'd become incredibly wise you think you would learn about human nature and you would you would kind of be above and what's so brilliant about this novel is the way in which he i think unlike a lot of those other ones he does subvert that this character tom hazard who's the main character who has lived for 450 years or so has no has got no more of a clue about life and love than any of us have um he hasn't he hasn't learned you know it hasn't taught him 
to you know to the secrets of life um, and it, it you know you come to realize well maybe there aren't any well, what, why, why, do you, why is that then why why hasn't it yeah well I think it's just this idea that we think that age will impart wisdom to us and I think you know as we get older perhaps we start to, to realize you know maybe I'm still the same idiot that I mm. was you know I think that's what what he's done with this is interesting he's, he's taken this character and what he describes as he says it's a, a condition and I did an event with him um, in front of an audience, and I said, who here would like to live for 900 years? And in a full room, only one person put their hand up, which really surprised me. But mm. this idea is, is it a blessing or a curse to, to, to live for a long time, to see loved ones go old and die and you not, to see everything that you like change? You know, the, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but one of the, one of the things, the, the, the character starts off, um, he's a contemporary of Shakespeare and he's playing the lute in in the, the Globe Theatre um, and then you know as he gets older you know he's a ma- he's a maestro lute player which in the modern era is not a particularly <laughs> valuable skill <And laughs> unless you unless you are sting <laughs> I can't stand stings uh, lute stuff it <laughs> really wise me unless you exactly who who wants to be who wants to be sting for uh, a year old thing? So you know that's quite interesting. Is this idea that you know everything just you know just passes away? There's you know, and I think that's what he does well in this book. He he it really does feel like it's written by someone who has lived for four hundred years, and he talks about how his his mental health um, condition sort of gave him that sense of. He said he was ill for a num- you know for three years, and that and that well, looking back on it felt like half his life. Um, how you know different you you know time can pass in different ways and you can uh, experience them different ways in different t- parts of your life. So um, really interesting, I thought. So um, that sounds brilliant. Um, we've got a, a second part to the interview, um, and that's coming up right now. Okay, let's play it then, shall we? I think if you were like the only one, or you felt like the only one, I think it would be a very lonely. Thing and it would make you scared of loving people and becoming attached to people, and you, you know, you'd ha- want to constantly move about, wouldn't you? Because you'd have reminders everywhere of like two hundred years, you know, and it'd end up literally doing your head in. So um, I don't know. I mean, part of me, I'm an absolute total, hundred percent hypochondriac. So I'm someone who totally worries about being a mortal person and death and illness and all of that. I'm the worst and the ultimate neurotic writer like that. But um, so it was almost like a thought exercise to imagine the other, to imagine knowing you had centuries ahead of you and actually um, doing a counter argument that that might not be such a great thing. Tom is alive from the 1500s and he reminds us that perhaps that people aren't any different really now than they were then. And it's very easy for us to forget that. Do you think that's do you think it's true that we can forget that easily? Um, yeah, and I think, you know, the year 2017 is doing a lot to sort of question our idea of progress and advancement, um, you know, certainly in terms of global politics and stuff. But I I totally believe that we have this very narrow view of history, very narrow view of progress. And we're the only species of animal that, well, as far as we know, who have to have this idea of progress. Yet our bodies and our brains remain stone age they remain fundamentally the same as they've always been for 150,000 generations or whatever and yet um, we have technological progress we have 
medicinal progress, we have all these other pro uh, forms of progress, yet the problem is now um, we are still fundamentally the same um, people and we don't seem to have solved the big problems that human beings have in terms of conflicts with each other, um, not looking after the planet properly. And so as technology advances and as we keep pushing that kind of progress... Um, I know it's totally utopian, but I, I just think, why can't we all just have a sit down and work out another kind of progress rather than we're just caught on this treadmill, which isn't, um, isn't very healthy, potentially, for the future. Tom meets a few famous names on his time on Earth, predominantly writers, um, but they never play for cheap laughs in the book. But were you ever tempted to have a sort of Forrest Gump-style... <laughs> journey through history well I think, I think the closest I got with that is the F. Scott Fitzgerald bit which is totally superfluous to the plot it's not, like it literally was me I mean it's, it's only a short chapter but that was that was me sort of doing the sort of like fantasy going into a sort of travel agents of time and just um, where do I want to go ooh you know, and I know many, many people have gone there before in fiction, but 1920s Paris would be somewhere I'd want to go um, because of the writers, because of a scene. So that stuff was just pure, total self-indulgence. Um, the Shakespeare stuff um, was, I knew, I, I could hear so many voices of advice, imaginary voices, but I'm sure they would have been saying it to say, don't do that, don't write Shakespeare. It was like... like the ultimate thing they'd say in a creative writing course don't write Shakespeare because either it'll be very cheesy or it will be um, you know it's Shakespeare you can't have but so the, just a sort of naughty side of me who th thought well I, I, I want to actually if, if someone's living if I'm reading a novel set in Shakespeare's time in London with the globe there I'm massively fascinated I'd be the one wanting to go and see Shakespeare and meet him so it's fiction, so I thought, you know, obviously I'm not going to be able to totally 100% get Shakespeare right, but the great thing, actually, in terms of fiction with Shakespeare is we, we know so little about him. Also, if someone's lived 400-plus years, you know, and he's picking, he's cherry-picking moments in his past and we're having little moments, you know, there would be some quite interesting and famous figures in there, but um, some of the... Other characters who are less well-known are actually um, real people. So there we are, travelling through, well, living through history and meeting different people. That was uh, Matt Haig and the second part of uh, 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 interview with uh, Matt Haig talking about how to stop time. Uh, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but we're, before we do that, we're going to talk to Catherine properly. How are you, Catherine? I'm, I'm quite well. A little bit tired, often a bit tired, but fine other than that. How you. was your summer? It was really nice. That's, that is probably the most positive thing I've ever said on this show. It was really, <laughs> yes. I'm always very sort of, oh, you know, struggling yeah. along. But no, it was lovely summer here. I had a nice holiday, read some books, did nice things. How was it book-wise? What did you read? I read uh, Swing Time, Zadie Smith, oh, yeah. uh, which I really loved. And I read Magnus Mills, The Scheme for Full Employment, which I don't know if you've read much Magnus Mills. I've read a couple of his, yeah. Oh, I love him. I think he's great. I say I love him. I think he's great. I've actually read three of his books, but I still... They're you know, quite short, though. So they're short, okay. and yeah. he's got just such a distinctive tone that yeah. I just, I, I really warm to it. Another one of those kind of very much bracketed in the working class writer's yeah. box as well, I yeah. think, Yeah, well, like, yes, he, you know, he's... he's 
yeah, he can never escape being referred to as, you know, bus driver, Magnus Mills, you know. Um, So, yeah, I read that. And then I read uh, the debut that I'm going to be talking about later, Louisa Salmer's book, which I guess now I've said it, that's actually only three novels, but that felt like quite a lot for... You're you're a busy busy person. person. Of course, now we're talking about um, How to Stop Time uh, by Matt Haig. Um, How do you feel... Stop I'm trying to work out about where this is going to come. Time. time. <laughs> um, about time travel. Well, Mike, it's something I have been working on for some time <laughs> using some circuit boards. I, am. Um, I don't. I, well, I, I'm. I'm. I don't. Not sure that I've read a great deal of time travel literature. Um, I'm trying to think. I used to read. I read loads and loads of Kurt Vonnegut, and I'm sure that oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. some of his books involve time travel. It feels a very. In fact, um, I'm afraid I've not read uh, any Matt Haig apart from I started The Humans, and his tone does remind me a bit of Kurt Vonnegut. That kind of very humane yeah. sort of voice mixed with um, humour. Um, but what interested me about him as well is that the fact that he turns his hand to so many different, you know, like children's literature, adults' literature, fiction, non-fiction. I think that's, um, yeah, I, I, I think he's fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, just yeah to, he's, you know. he's quite a skill to have as well, isn't he? Yeah. He's, doing, um, he's doing some musical stuff at the moment with uh, one of Razor Light as well. Um, and um, he is, um, I think it's children's music, I'm not sure exactly. Um, and he's also, the, the book itself is being potentially made into a film. And he's We've playing the spoons. He is playing the spoons. Benedict Cumberbatch That's bought the, the rights to it prior to it even being completed as a novel. Oh right. Okay. So and he's attached to play the character of Tom Hazard. Uh, which which kind of famous actor do you think would ever buy the rights to one of your books before it was finished? I'm trying to think. Uh, you know. <laughs> I think of someone really rubbish who would buy it. Not yours, not yours, Mike. Like, well, Adam Woodyatt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not saying he's rubbish. Perfect example. <laughs> Adam Woodyatt was so excited by the latest novel that he snapped it up. He wants to play a, a, a child detective, female child detective. A bit of a stretch of a role for him, but I'm sure oh, he can manage it. Poor Adam. He's oh, got a Jim <laughs> Yeah, oh, but there, I mean, just going back to this thing of a time travel as well as you know, so stress is not. It's not. You know, he's not this. The, the time travel he has is his body, if you like, course, in the sense yeah. that we're all yeah. travelling through time. We were all born in, you know, nineteen seventy whatever, um, or in uh, Stuart's case, nineteen eighty whatever, <laughs> uh, and then we pass. You know, we pass through, and that's what this guy does. He just lives. You know, his time travel is is living, and um, you know, there's there's so much sadness in life as we know. Uh, imagine living for 900 years. Of course, it must be magnified. Yeah. Thing, yeah. Um, so it, there's a lot of little moments in this book where he just has his little observations. They don't always hit the mark, I, I will say, but they often do. These little observations, you think, you know, th- Matt Haig, the writer, is obviously a wise observer of, of human life and and sadness, um, and is and he does put you know pepper the book with them really well. And for you, I know I always ask this, but. I, I, I think it's, it's it's quite nice when there is a standout moment in the book. Was there one for you? Um, it was. It, it's probably the um, the relationship. There's a rela- he, he, his, the, the character essentially has the love of his life when he's um, uh, before he realises he has this condition, um, and then he he is not able to love again for for hundreds of years. Um, he finally opens up and, and he he starts a relationship with with one of the teachers, a history teacher at a school, uh, and he starts a relationship with one of the, the other teachers there. Uh, and that is very sensitively drawn, I think. And, and there's a moment in there where, you know, she is trying to decide whether or not to 
to commit to him, which works really well, I thought. Very enjoyable. Okay, so um, we're going to have our third and final part of our interview with um, this month's Book of the Month uh, author, Matt Haig, and he's uh, talking to us about how to stop time, and here's the third part of the interview. But what we do get from the book is that is, is a sense that although he lives for all this time and it comes to the things that, that perhaps do stop time, which mm. is love, he doesn't really learn a huge amount no. as he goes along. I mean, do you, do you think that we, we get any better at this as we get older? No. And I think that's one of my things, you know, and like also not just him, but each human society he's in as he's going, you know, it's progressed in some ways, but it hasn't progressed in other ways, and we're still the same problems, and we're still so, you know, the scenes of street violence now, and scenes of street violence, now, you know, we're still fundamentally the same flawed species. And he himself, yeah, he doesn't progress. There's actually a um, quote I always like. There's an interview with um, Charles Bukowski on YouTube that I've seen when he's a really old man and old writer and he's saying um, that the thing he hates about being in his 70s is that everything feels like a repetition it's very hard to get a new emotion it's very very hard to discover a new thing so imagine living for centuries how much familiarity there would be in the world and to try and find something new and try and learn how to love life again when so many intense experiences in the past so everything would feel like a cover version it'd be very hard to um, find newness in anything and I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated I think that's possibly the old midlife crisis thing coming into a novel but um, yeah I'm fascinated by that idea of how to stay being fascinated and curious as we get older how we discover new things because obviously when you're a child everything's new but then now the the book is hopefully being made into a film yeah hopefully that would be nice um benedict cumberbatch has um bought film rights he wants to play tom hazard he's attached to play him and it's very early days because it's literally like two months ago this all happened um but they're looking for writers and yes i mean i'm eternally pessimistic so i don't like to imagine red carpets or anything like that but and i've also had other books with film rights sold when nothing's happened the difference is here is an actor who's actually attached to play the role and being the, the actor who he is he gets people excited and interested and people sit up and notice and stuff so yes i'm feeling cautiously optimistic as they say but yeah it's exciting that was the uh, third and final part of our interview with uh, stellar author matt haig and uh, he was talking about how to stop time. I mean, it sounds absolutely amazing. So The answer, uh, by the way, how to stop time, is love. Uh-huh. Um, and it's something that you know, many writers have talked about before. Douglas Copeland talked about it a lot as well as this idea of when life becomes a repetition of, of things and nothing goes on, the thing that, is, the thing that breaks us out of that is love. So, in short, Blake, uh, thumbs up? Uh, yes, a thumbs up from me, definitely. Fantastic. So uh, this month's Book of the Month has been How to Stop Time by Matt Haig. It's available at all good bookshops, especially Waterstones. <laughs> uh, now, um, moving on, we're going to... Uh, we got got this month's blog spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's by Ian J. Simpson from the Forgotten Thing Geek blog. Mm-hmm. And... Um, He's going to be using Matt Haig's The Humans as a sort of a jumping-off point to talk about aliens and uh, what they tell us about humanity. Sounds very intriguing. 
So, uh, Ian J. Simpson from the Forgotten Geek blog, talking about sci-fi. Hi all, my name is Ian J. Simpson, also known as the Forgotten Geek. I've not read Matt Haig's latest book, although it is on my to-read pile. I have read both the Radleys and the Humans, which I loved. I would highly recommend them both, especially the latter. In it, an alien occupies the body of a dead mathematics professor who had solved some major mathematical problem the aliens didn't want them to know. Higgs' book is warm, funny and insightful, as the alien begins to understand both humanity and love via the relationships people have with him. And that kind of got me thinking about aliens in general. I think there is a significant difference between the aliens of science fiction and those depicted in fantasy and mythology. In some cases, gods are depicted as aliens, and in some cases, aliens are sufficiently advanced to have godlike powers. As Arthur C. Clarke famously wrote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. However, the Norse gods in their world of Asgard could be seen as aliens, but not like those found in science fiction as a rule. So here are some of my top aliens for you to go and explore. Micromagus by Voltaire, which was published in 1752, is an inhabitant of a planet orbiting Sirius. This planet is, as Voltaire describes, 21.6 million times greater in circumference than the Earth. This alien is, therefore, 24,000 paces from tip to toe, or about 20,000 feet tall. Voltaire, then, is describing something truly alien, and something that had never been described before in fiction. But he also describes it with a degree of authenticity, using science. H.G. Wells and C.S. Lewis both, ta both tackled Martians much later on. Of course, they are the invading monsters analogous to the British colonialism in 1897's War of the Worlds by Wells, but in Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, published in 1938, there are three single-purpose species. There are slender humanoid thinkers, creative overstretched otters, and the insectile amphibious builders. Childhood's End, published in 1953 from the great Arthur C. Clarke, is one of my favourite books in science fiction. It features benevolent aliens that have overseen human evolution. This is a terrific example of how science fiction examines our prejudices. The overseers in Clark's work have the appearance of Satan, yet they are good. Michael Crichton might be best known for Jurassic Park, but I love his microscopic DNA-free crystalline invaders in 1969's The Andromeda Strain. But my favourite alien species of all time might just be the Pearson's puppeteers from Larry Niven's The Ringworld series. They are three-legged and two-headed creatures, and the brain isn't even in the heads. It's quite interesting as Niven has created a whole biological, sociological and political history for these extraterrestrial oddities. Science fiction writers can tackle every aspect of human existence by writing about aliens, from invasion to being invaded, from examining the nature of consciousness to our own mortality, from racism and bigotry to an understanding of religious beliefs. I had to check out Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow, Michelle Faber's Under the Skin, and Nideki Okafaro's Binti series if you want to explore these concepts further. For more on these and other science fiction and fantasy, check out my blog at The Forgotten Geek, and you can find me on Twitter at Ian J. Simpson. Right, I'm off to find my copy of Haig's latest before the aliens really do get here. There we go, some interesting stuff about aliens and very much ties into this theme that Matt Haig has of you, um, uh, you know, using these themes to tell us about what it means to be human. You know, it's not just about little green men. Excellent. Thank you very much, for Ian, for that. And um, hopefully we'll see you in another couple of episodes, maybe. And so moving on, we're, uh, we've got our uh, debut 
section. Oh yes, we're supposed to play some music for that, aren't we? Oh, you can do if it's you all, want. It's all going a little bit wrong today. I do apologise. Here we go. Do you remember the first time? Oh, that means that uh, Catherine's here again. Yeah, I, you know what? I've just realised you shouldn't talk to me before that music because I like the idea of in the listeners' minds, the big sea of listeners out there, that as that music plays, they see me descending down a staircase of like course, people do on yes, chat shows, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. And we're sort of, you know, well, I think it ruins that, it. Well, imagine that, if you will, yeah. that Catherine had just descended uh, down some steps or indeed parachuted straight <laughs> into the studio. <laughs> Uh, uh, we said how are you um, you're going to tell us what's your, what's your book this month uh, it's called Flesh and Bone and Water which is one of those titles that has very few words but is incredibly hard to actually remember correctly and uh, it's by um, Louisa Salma I think is how you pronounce it I'm not sure and it is a book about um, a middle aged man a Brazilian but he's uh, living in uh, London and he's uh, recently separated from his British wife and his daughters are grown up. So he's kind of in a bit of a, a down, downward spiral. And he starts to receive letters from someone he knew in the past who's called uh, uh, Luana, the daughter of uh, his family's former live-in maid. And these letters, they're sort of, they're quite restrained, but they're clearly reproachful. And it's obvious that Luana has some uh, unfinished business with Andre. Um, and so obviously the book kind of takes him back in time to his life as a wealthy teenager living in Rio de Janeiro in the 1980s. Um, his mother was killed in a car accident and his fo- father works as a busy plastic surgeon. And Andre spends his days on the beach with his sort of listless teenage friends. And the book gradually unpicks the shared history of Andre and Luana. And I think it's really, uh, it's really compelling, evocative book and it's really about loss and class and place you know and there are always things I'm drawn to you know me with my working class roots and everything obviously it's on the lookout <laughs> for stuff like that um, it's really really great vivid portrait of, of Rio in the 80s uh, or at least I say that as if I know Rio obviously I hung out there a lot in the 80s Rio in the 90s so yeah. it's, um, but um, it's at least a, a, an incredibly vivid portrait of Rio for the wealthy and the white. Mm. Um, it's always very clear that there is this other Rio, the Rio of Luana and her mother, of the poor and the black and the serving class. Um, and Andre's loss of his mother and the loss of his youth and the loss of Luana gives the book this really lovely, aching kind of elegiac tone that I really, I really liked. Um, I read it... Um, I read it sort of months ago now, but it's really stayed with me. I think it's got a really, yeah, really lovely uh, sort of pulls you in. It pulls you in. Um, so anyway, the, li- the history between these two characters, this secret, is gradually revealed and it comes as a shock to Andre, though probably not to the reader because you possibly anticipate what this mm. revelation is going to be. And um, I read a review criticising the book for this, saying it sort of failed to satisfy because the mystery wasn't really mysterious enough and they sort of had guessed it. And uh, this, this in, enraged me. Ah, <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. Because I just thought, well, if that's what you think makes a good book, being shocked or having the rug pulled out from underneath you, then you're going to get what you deserve, which is books that are all concept and no trousers. The very yeah. books Mike and I often discuss. <laughs> the very books that, that I, I have tortured myself with these past few months. I read a couple of those <laughs> over from... Still haven't, you know, in a great first half, 
Yeah. And then just no ending. The so we, I- we don't find out that Luana was a beetle at the end. <laughs> no, no, she doesn't. No, no, Mike wouldn't like that. But um, no, I just think it's fine to anticipate, you know, a twist in the plot or not a twist, a sort of a, a, an element in the plot. That doesn't ruin the book. The book is about the characters and the way it's written and it's totally there is satisfying. There an obsession from readers. Yeah. To be, to be fair, I think it, it's something that, it's, it's that kind of trying to, you know, oh, we guessed that, we guessed that. Well, of course you've guessed it because yeah. we've given you information to find it out. We're not, you know, it's not even like we're trying to keep it away from no, you because no. that's not what the book's about. Well, it shouldn't be, I don't think. And those books that, that try and do that, try and manipulate the reader in such a way that it's all smoke and mirrors and they're revealing things and sliding back doors at some points, they often are really disappointing yes. because it's like, ugh, you know, this is just a big, big sort of uh, bag of tricks that hasn't got much substance to it. So... I think this book is nothing like that at all. There is there is a secret in it. You may or may not work out what the secret is before you actually are told what the secret is. But that makes absolutely no uh, that has no de- detrimental impact mm. on the book. So yeah, go go and read it. I think it's people people want to feel like they're, they're, they're clever and go. Oh, I guess what it was straight away. Yeah. Yeah. Go, oh right. Okay. Does that mean that you're a novelist then? Yeah. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's um. And it, is the book is it a, is it a translation? Is it a Portuguese? No, book no. She's um. I think she. Grew up in uh, Brazil, but raised in London. So she's um, she's a graduate of um, writing at Goldsmiths College. So yeah, no, it's a British debut. I mean, obviously, different country, slightly different time, um, but it is in essence a, a coming of age novel. It is, it is absolutely, and it is. It could be anywhere. I mean, obviously, in Rio, it's incredibly polarized, but it's still about the sort of the life of the dissipated teenager and the kind of what's going on behind the scenes to keep that dissipated teenager kind of, you know, living the life he leads. Did you feel any sort of connection with the main character? (laughs) Well, back when I was uh, living (laughs) that life on Copacabana Beach. um, Yeah, I do. I I mean, again, I sort of, uh, I I was reading a review which said, oh, you know, you don't get much insight into the other characters. But I think that's deliberate because, you know, he's kind of solipsistic. He's this teenager. And and in in middle age, he's kind of just dwelling on his past. But uh, it's despite that, he is kind of an engaging character. It's all very quite, you know, sad in tone. And yeah, I I did. I liked him. I liked him. Is he someone you don't mind spending that time with? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds really interesting. Mm. I mean, Brazil's a fascinating canvas, isn't it? Because as yeah, you say, it's a yeah. place of extremes. Yeah, yeah, and it was quite. It's it's quite good because it is just this very. It's not actually a portrait I've read much of before. This sort of like you know nineteen eighties teenage rich teenager life in in Brazil. It was it was really. Um, there's there are other sides where he goes out to the country and spends time in more rural areas, but it's really interesting the kind of polarization there. Mm. So, um, finally, just to wrap up, that was Flesh, Bone and Water by who? Sorry? Uh, I think it's Louisa Salma. And uh, it's published by Penguin Viking mm. and uh, available in all good bookshops. So, uh, please uh, buy it. I think that, that gets the... Yeah, uh, gets I don't want to reduce up. everything to thumbs up. But I oh, think let's do it. The, uh, the Brum Radio <laughs> yes. thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How many thumbs do you give that one? <laughs> So um, we are closing up on the end of the show, but it is there is time for us to round up with what we are currently reading, which I will begin with because I'm have, I've got a, I had a birthday last week oh, as well, birthday, um, so I was sent books that I wouldn't normally uh, have, have picked up, and I've really enjoyed reading those. One of them is a book called Not Forgetting the Whale by John Einmonger, and I was just talking about this 
um, off air. Odd looking thing. Looks like a, a very jolly book. It's cov- covered in plaudits saying how uplifting it is. Um, so I was reading that. My sister gave it and I thought, okay. Um, very much not what I expected. Quite a, a dark story. I, mean, I hope this, I haven't finished it yet, so I hope there's some redemption. That's why it's uplifting. But a very dark story. Uh, and also, my mother, who's quite cool, bought me a graphic novel um, a sort of fictionalised life of Nick Cave, which is what? It's really interesting. It's a, it's a kind of a story of his life told through, you know, literal biography, but also uh, all these kind of fantastical interludes uh, based on his song lyrics. That sounds ridiculous. It's really good. <laughs> that really sounds... good. So does, does it have? Is Kylie in there? Uh, Kylie, I haven't finished it yet, um, and so I'm only at the point where he is—he's uh, just moved to Brazil of all places. Oh right, well, how about how about his, you know, his his relationship with PJ Harvey? Um, yes, I believe it's in. It's, it's certainly about. I've, I can say I'm only halfway through, oh, and it's ridiculous. all about the origins of the birthday party and stuff. I would recommend it. I'm not. I'm a, sorry, I'm not that, that is just silly, uh, but it's uh, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Well, I say my mum is quite cool that she just sent it me for my birthday. I'd never heard of it before, but I would. Yeah, I would recommend it. What are you reading then, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> He's reading a comic book uh, yeah. series on the life of Banana Rama. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> yes. Um, oh right. Um, I was trying to remember when he, when you said this. I wish mm. you. Uh, Sorry, give me some sort of notice because I can <laughs> never remember uh, books no, no, no. or titles. But I am continuing, um, as I alluded to when we were talking to Catherine, I'm continuing um, on my determination, on my, my kind of path to find a decent thriller that has a second half that's as good as the first half. Um, and so I'm plowing through more of those. Uh, and I've yet to find one. Uh, they're just. They're very good at coming up with these brilliant sort of concepts that kind of go, oh, wow, how are we possibly going to solve that? And then second half, it's, oh, right, okay, that's mm. how. Time travel, aliens and <laughs> cheats. Not, not, no, not, not so much that. I mean, just, just really silly things mm. just that make no sense. Um, I, I, I probably at some point should start reading some good books, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I just like, like I'm, I'm actually them. quite angry uh, about this that that people are allowed to get away with it. So um, I, I will just continue doing it until um, my rage consumes well, me. Yeah, you might you might you might find it. You might hit the uh, hit the the sweet spot and find one that really does it right. I mean, for me, Gone Girl did, but I know you weren't 100. percent No, no. <sighs> Where am I with Gone Girl? Gone Girl is probably about three quarters of a, of a, of a really mm. good novel, but I mean, it does get silly at the end. Mm. It, it got completely ridiculous. There's no two ways about that. Okay. Um, at least I'm reading books and not just watching telly. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Catherine, uh, Stuart, and Andrew, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, I, a bit like Mike. I, I, I went through, I was getting rid of loads of books the other day because I've got no room, so I was trying to clear stuff out. And in the process of doing that, I found, obviously, as you always do, loads of books you haven't read. And so I put loads of them next to. I bed, start reading them, and I've forgotten what they were like. The only one I remember is that I was going to read some um, Dorothy L. Sayers, who I've never read, but oh, last yes, yeah. year when I was working at Warwick University, a lot of the students had to write essays about her um, Lord Peter Whimsy books, and they sounded really great. I got really... <laughs> the students would come in wanted to talk about their essays. I go, but, but tell me about the book, what actually happens? <laughs> and so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read... Um, someone bought me one of uh, hers for my birthday, so I think I'm going to read that next. Uh, Stuart. Thank you very much. So um, I'm reading someone who's appearing at the festival, which is uh, Camilla Shamsey, who's written a new book called Home Fire. Um, and it's 
sounds really interesting. She's a really she's on her sixth book. She's written some really good books already, um, but this one's a kind. Of, it's kind of the Antagony Antigone myth, but set in a kind of Muslim community in London. So you've got kind of love interest, but then you've got politics kind of souring the whole thing, and the inevitable tragic denouement that I haven't got to yet, but. She's such a good writer that she's doing it really well, and it's really interesting seeing other communities you don't always get that close to as well. So, really good. Sounds fantastic. And how about you, Adam? Um, I've been reading. I've been trying to plow my way through some of the book a long list. Don't know why. Sense of duty, I guess. Um, and I've got to Ministry of Utmost Happiness by Arundhati Roy. But I'm also uh, rereading It by Stephen King oh. because I was a little disappointed with the recent. Uh, Adaptation. One of the few people who seems to have been, and uh, yes, yeah, so I thought I'd just oh, fancy so reading how, that again. How was the film? The <laughs> it was frust- <laughs> it was frustratingly promising. Oh right, okay. Well, I, I have to say, I picked up. Oh, no, that sounds like all of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Could it not be about all of our lives, Mike? <laughs> what, what was it? What was sorry? What was? I know it's not a film show, but what, what was it in particular? What was um, wrong with it? <sighs> I didn't expect a, you know, an obviously a faithful retelling of the book for a number of reasons, but it just felt there was enough of it to feel like it had the possibility of being great, but it felt like it had been quite heavily edited and some of the changes didn't really make any sense. It's an absolute monster of a book. I picked it up today in Waterstones and it's, it's absolutely huge. It's yeah, really, I mean, it's the thing. Really I mean, I'm not. A, don't get me wrong. I'm not some Stephen King aficionado. It's one of the few Stephen King books I've actually read. But there is just something really great about the book. It's a great yarn, um, and it's very easy to read. And you will whiz through it because of the style of his writing. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that the, the film actually only covers half the book? Yeah, the film only covers the childhood part. I think the second part, because apparently the box office has been amazing, so they're going to be doing the second part, which will cover them as adults. I, sorry, I saw a, a, a tweet from Stephen King this morning and um, people were saying that they're very excited about the second half of, uh, of it and they can't wait for the film. And, and he, he sort of pointed out, you can go out and buy the book. <laughs> you don't have to wait. And on that point, um, I think it's time to finish. I would like to say a huge thank you to Matt Haig, who's our book of the month, uh, giving out his precious time to talk about how to stop time. Also, I want to thank um, uh, our blogger, Ian J. Simpson uh, for his time thanks to uh, Stuart and Kath and Andrew thank you and of course Blake for being the man who runs the desk the desk of doom okay well let's see if I can uh, Um, finish that off by pressing the right button now and so we're uh, uh, thanks for listening Uh, we look forward to uh, being back again next month Uh, hopefully that'll be when we're looking at November the second, November the second Wednesday. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, yeah. We'll be back in November, and we will have another book of the month, uh, another blog Actually, spot. We'll be back in October because it's only September. Oh, so yes, yeah. <laughs> we missed a whole month. Oh, uh, we, we we have. You can tell we've not done this for a while. We'll be back. <laughs> yeah, time travel. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's been a great show. Thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please consider joining our listener supporters. You can do this by clicking the support tab on our website 
will go direct to Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Brum Radio. Brum Radio shows are streamed online at the Brum Radio Mixcloud page, and you can find more podcasts at brumradio.com.